Okay, um, so, uh, Ed Hussain, you are one of the directors of the Quilliam Foundation, and um, we're going to ask you a few questions on, uh, based on your expertise about uh, combating extremism, dealing with uh, various types, but particularly um, Islamic extremism and, and, and radicalism, and we'd like to have your views for our podcast. So, um, in the room are Ed, Catherine Piesky from Counterpoint, and Mark Erbel from Counterpoint as well. Over to you, Mark. <laughs> First question we'd like to ask you is, um, how you would set off radicalism and extremism? I think the first thing to say is that there is a lot of overlap between the two. You know, every extremist is a radical, but not every radical is an extremist. With that in mind, it's worth maybe taking an example of, say, the modern Middle East or any Muslim-majority country across the Arab world. Let's, let's home in on Egypt, for example, where there are lots of radical ideas, whether they're radical liberals, whether they're radicals who have an Islamist bent of politics who want to do the right thing. In other words, end dictatorship, work for women's in emancipation, empower religious minorities. Those in the current status quo of a lethargic dictatorial Egypt are radical ideas. But then there are those who go to the extreme with that radical idea and want to physically overthrow the government, want to impose a literalist reading of religious text on Egyptian society. And that, to me, is a sign of extremism, where you take what are rightful ideas, ideas that challenge the status quo, and take them to a literalist, extremist, destructive uh, ending. In the British context, the suffragettes were rightly radical, um, as was Martin Luther King in his day in the American context. So radicalism per se isn't the problem, it's what you do with that radicalism. Would you, would you make a distinction, which many people make, I think, um, between radical and extremist by saying that, you know, <clears throat> radical is, is going against the status quo, it's kind of, it's proposing, you know, literally something that uproots the status quo in terms of ideas, aspirations, um, but that extremism is a, a question of actually of means, a question of behavior. Do you think that the, do you think that that distinction has any mileage? Yes and no. Um, the, the radical that wants to uproot the status quo. And the question has to be asked of that radical: What does that radical want to replace the status quo with? Mm. The extremist who has a radical tendency and wants to uproot the status quo. In the Muslim context, extremists almost always don't just believe in uprooting the status quo, but they have this year zero mentality in that the status quo has delivered nothing over the last several hundred years. In the Muslim example, the last 1400 years, they mm. believe in going back to a 7th century worldview, mm. a utopian mindset. Mm. But that utopia, if it was based on egalitarian principles, fair enough, but that utopia, every time they've tried to emulate it, be it in Taliban-led Afghanistan, be it in Saud-led Saudi Arabia, be it in Nigeria or Sudan or Iran, we've seen those societies self-combust. We've seen them end up in situations where they're doing a huge amounts of damage not to their majority population but also to their minorities, mm -hmm. to, to, to women, mm -hmm. to sexual and religious minorities. And that to me is never radical, although it may seem radical when these people were in opposition. When Atala Khomeini was in opposition mm -hmm. in the 70s, he looked like a radical person from France and Paris conducting a campaign rightly against the dictator that was the uh, Iranian Shah. But when he got into parliament, uh, sorry, in, in power rather, 
look at what he's delivered and look where Iran is today with the rest of the international community. That's just a very mild form of extremism, but I think the more extreme example of extremism, extremisms rather, would be you know, the Taliban-led Afghanistan, or would be the, Iran or the, the Saudi regime to which we turn a blind eye. Mm. Um, and now those, there are people inside Saudi Arabia who want to uproot that status quo, which mm. is extremism, and replace it with a, a, you know, a liberal radicalism, <laughs> and good luck to them. And we're <laughs> yeah. on the side of those radicals. Yeah. Um, for example, uh, um, if we think about what you said about Egypt, would you think that they, whoever that is, the UK, international community, the European Union, are getting it right? I assume you were referring to the Muslim Brotherhood as being radicals, um, and then groups which are, have almost disappeared, like uh, Islamic Jihad in, in Egypt, uh, as being more the extremists by employing violence. Do you assume that the community is getting it right in approaching, for example, policy with Egypt? Is it the European community we're talking about? Uh, whichever you're, you're more comfortable talking about. I mean, Europe, the European Union as an institution has its own flaws. I mean, it's still talking about having a foreign policy and having appointing a high representative. So bearing all those flaws in mind um, and thinking about the, the only European country that has had the most engagement with Egypt, although I've taken board that other countries have had engagement with other Middle Eastern countries, Britain seems to have had most engagement with Egypt, 1882 invasion onwards to, right. to this day. Um, I, it, it's shameful that we haven't got it right, I'm sorry, mm. because you can't on the one hand prop up a dictator, Hosni Mubarak, and then carve the pathway for his son, Gamal Mubarak, and then stand by and see people like uh, um, Ayman Noor, Ayman who is a you know, liberal politician, put in prison and not complain about his being in prison for opposing the Egyptian government. Uh, one can carry on about the details, but putting the details to one side, we haven't stood up for human rights, we haven't stood up for women's rights, we haven't stood up for Coptic Christian rights in negotiating and dealing with Egypt. As long as the Egyptians were somehow controlling not just a Muslim Brotherhood but in Hamas and served as a conduit to Tel Aviv and also to uh, Gaza, we were in recent years content to just turn a blind eye. I mean, Tony Blair has had holidays at the Egyptian government's expense, as I think has David Cameron. Um, so it's, it's that mindset of turning a blind eye I think, and not having a holistic approach towards trying to counter extremism or trying to bolster what is rightly, you know, it's not a Western discourse, it's a universal discourse. And Egyptians, Egyptian um, trade unionists have been at the forefront of developing a human rights discourse since the 1940s and 50s, and we've ignored them. Um, so it's, it's, it's that age-old question, isn't it, between truth and power? Um, what about the, some would argue that, um, that in a sense it's, it was a, a a policy not just of turning a blind eye but also of a kind of gently gently approach engaging in order to over time change uh, change the regime in other words you know basically engaging in diplomacy and diplomatic relations rather than rather than cutting off the the contact is I mean does that sound even remotely plausible in, in theory it does um, and you can see 1956, the Suez Crisis, Anthony Eden to where we are now. And I'm sure post-Suez, that was the sentiment, that you know, don't go in with guns, retreat, diplomacy, <laughs> trade, aid, etc., etc. Well, you know, several decades on, where are the results? Mm. You know, e Egypt's prisons are still full, torture is still ubiquitous, 
uh, you know, dictatorship is still in place, political and religious pluralism is nowhere to be seen, opposition politicians of any hue are locked up, Muslims who convert to Christianity are locked up, Christians who convert to Islam are locked up. Mm, mm. Um, so I mean, it, it, it's, it's noble in intent. Even in 1997, mm -hmm. remember that uh, you know, ethical foreign policy line that was advocated mm -hmm. by Robin Cook. Well, where is that ethical foreign policy 12 years after a Labour government? Mm -hmm. Where are those ethics? And you know, the final point is that it's 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 some way the flaw of democracy, I guess, in that ministers, politicians can't see beyond four-year, you know, electoral mm -hmm. success. Mm -hmm. So when you link aid to say delivery of greater human rights or greater political pluralism, where are the mechanisms to see that through? Yeah. You know? I mean, I've raised this at the Foreign Office, but those mechanisms just aren't, aren't in place. I mean, civil servants do two-year stints and they move on to their next comfortable posting. Mm. Politicians do four-year stints, but these dictators have 30, 40-year stints, <laughs> so you know, they're outplaying us again and again. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. So would you say that there is a correlation between the approach to a country like Egypt, where what are perceived as radicals and extremists are suppressed, but a dictatorship is being propped up, and policies within the UK, by sort of UK policies, for example, towards the Middle East, and policies within the UK with regards to radicalism and extremism. The last bit of the question was? Would, do you see a correlation mm. there with, for example, mistakes that are being done in, for example, the Middle East, and uh, possible mistakes that are being done within the UK with the approach to radicalism and extremism? Ah, uh, yeah. Um, in some ways, yes. Um, take, for example, some of the radicals that we have inside our prisons here in the UK. Um, some of them have been there for 10 years, some for 12 years, some for 6 years. Now, these are some of the most wanted characters in the Middle East. Um, Abu Qatada, who's wanted in Jordan. Now, one of the reasons why we can't deport these people back to their countries is because those countries torture, and rightly we shouldn't hand over people to regimes that torture. Now, we can't get guarantees from those regimes that are worth the paper that they're written on because our government doesn't trust those regimes. There are no UN inspections to mm -hmm. verify in prisons what the conduct of the prison authorities in those countries is. And therefore, what we're lumbered with here is these radicals, these extremists, radicalising you know, hundreds of other people in UK prisons. Mm -hmm. The UK Muslim prison population at the moment is nearing 10,000. That's about 13% of the prison population, disproportionate number. So they're radicalising inside prison, but we can't deport them back to their home countries, and they're not British nationals, because we have no guarantees that we can believe in credible guarantees on these people not being tortured. Now, had the Foreign Office, as well as the Department for International Trade, made it you know, a holistic outlook that the doing of trade with these countries, the doing of holding of diplomatic ties and the giving of aid to those countries must be linked to them not torturing their citizens in prison, then we wouldn't have this problem here. It's just one example to illustrate how it's all linked and yet they've somehow managed to sell it to us that it's not linked. Yeah. Does that help sort of the Yeah. yeah. What would you in terms of the because um, you've you've referred to radicalization in, in prison uh, in prisons. Um, uh, it's interesting, I mean there's two questions here. One is that we always we always think of radicalization uh, turning people into extremists. Somehow we haven't come up with a word that captures extremization. Right? You, know, you, you, just a, have. you just have. Yeah, but it doesn't exactly treps off the tongue, does it? Well, Gordon Brown's Afghanization didn't, but it's, it's getting there. It's getting there. <laughs> you know, I mean, in a sense, it is interesting yeah. that, you know, we only see it as one path, right? A path of radicalization that 
inevitably leads to extremism rather than 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 perhaps separate paths. But um, also, I guess you know you you refer to radicalization in in prisons, um, and you know others work on radicalization in higher education, for example. Overall, would you say that you know um, since nine eleven, but even more so, say since seven seven? I mean, do you think that that overall we've seen an improvement of whatever sort, either our understanding or even our our deliverables on this? Have we got anything right? Mm. We in Britain, mm. Mm. Um, you know, have things got better? Um, somebody mm. like Yasmin Alibi Brown would argue that things have got worse. For example. Um, what, what's your point of view? It's such a difficult question to answer, but I'll try. Um, there are many things that indicate that things have got better, you know, not least the awareness levels among the media and political class mm. about the nature of the problem, not least the ending of political correctness in addressing these issues head on. Mm. Most importantly, we haven't had a major terrorist attack, not for lack of wanting, but mm -hmm. for the success of the security and intelligence mm. communities to prevent it from happening. Um, the allocation of funding and resources for groups that genuinely care, mm. not just to prevent, but also to inform the authorities as and when these things happen. Examples of this are, say, you know, the mosque in Bristol that handed over Andrew Ibrahim when they saw him come in with burnt hands. <laughs> you know, ten years ago, people would have sort of not worried about that. That was mm. his problem. But now, because of the emphasis on extremism, terrorism, mm. you know, communities are coming forward to hand over these individuals to the authorities. So those are some good signs. But there are also bad signs that may, you know, lend credibility to Yasmin's arguments. The fact that we've got about 3,000 young extremists, mostly from an Islamist background, who are being observed by the authorities as we speak. Mm -hmm. That wasn't the case pre-9-11 or pre-7-7. Now you can say that's a good thing that they're being watched, or it's a bad thing that we've got such high numbers. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. The, the fact that we have now driven much of this extremism underground, away from college and university campuses because of the kind of awarenesses that you allude to. So you know, we've got Islam Channel that, that's you know, set up, run, and all sorts of problematic content, which we can go into if you wish, uh, reaching into the homes of thousands and thousands of young Muslims. The fact that we've got 13% of the UK prison population that comes from Muslim background, mm. but not to say that therefore everyone's extreme in there, but there are extremists who are, that are operating in there. Mm. The fact that we've got northern seminaries from a very austere Deoband school mm. to operate in post-16, who will produce the imams for the next 15 to 20 years in, mm. in UK mosques, without any awareness of, of a pluralist secular society, but mm. just being indoctrinated based on a curriculum of 13th century Baghdad. I mean, I could <laughs> go on. So th those are you know, indicators of problems ahead. But all that's underwritten by the fact that we now have greater awareness among the political and media class, for, and we're hopeful that this awareness will you know, disseminate, and in time, this can, and this can never be eradicated, it can only be contained, and you yeah. can't eradicate extremism that's been with us yeah. since biblical times, you know, so hopefully it'll be contained. Do you think, I mean, you were, um, you were referring to the case of the mosque in Bristol, where essentially the, the community um, was aware enough to report a person that, that seemed to be involved in uh, problematic activities. Um, is it a question of awareness? I'm sure you're right. Is it? Can we also deduce from that that there is greater trust in the in the authorities? I mean, it was something that was often raised about, um, for example, the the 
plot in Toronto, Canada. Mm. The fact that you know they were they were essentially um, shot <laughs> mm -hmm. by the community around them to the Canadian authorities, and you know often people um, drew the 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 natural uh, conclusion that you know clearly these communities trusted the the authorities enough in Canada mm. to feel that it was all right to to turn to them. Do you think that we've that now, you know, with all sorts of initiatives, including, you know, sort of uh, community-based initiatives, mm. community-based counterterrorism uh, initiatives, mm. that we've broken through that, that there is a minimal amount of trust. I, I was in um, Lancashire recently and mm. in a gathering of mosque imams. Um, uh, four years ago, these mosque imams would never have come to the local yeah. town hall. Now, there was no need never mind the desire on their part to be there. But there they were, you know, at 10 o'clock on a Monday morning, mm. um, there in, in, in large numbers. And there are similar initiatives up and down the country where local authorities are talking directly with local communities. Mm. Um, so that's, a, that's an indication of, yes, there's been greater engagement mm. via Whitehall, via local authorities, with local communities, and there is greater trust. There's greater trust also because, uh, you know, media people have gone out for whatever reason, and built relationships up and down the country. You can go to, say, something as remote as Fox News mm. that has relationships, as well as some someone like you know, BBC that has relationships mm. with key community activists, community leaders, whatever they are up and down the country. So those are good signs. Um, not least, you know, having more Muslim politicians or Asian politicians has helped illustrate the fact that Parliament isn't this institution for you know Etonians, uh, white middle-aged schoolboys, but for people from all different backgrounds. All of those are positive examples, and I think they, therefore there is greater trust, there is greater recognition, there's greater ownership, greater belonging, mm. because you know we see institutions and we see there are people we identify with in those institutions. Mm. But then there are also negative signs because there are. Uh, I mean, I was in Beeston in Leeds recently where the suicide bombers came from, so two weeks ago. And there, outside mosques, just mingling with young people, there's still a great deal of suspicion and doubt that how could it possibly be the case that people from this city went and did mm. what was you know, what was essentially Britain's homegrown terrorist attack. There is that denial, there mm. is that conspiracy theory mindset that still exists. So, the, you know, the, the more sober, home, you know, grown-up people, I mm. think, have reached out and got a better handle on these things but that I hate to use the word but it exists that underclass mm. you know that has very little trust for mm. authority whether it's the school teacher or whether it's the you know white or lot yeah the trust you speak about isn't there yet well, it's interesting that you, you use that word um, uh, you know underclass I mean it just Partly, it points to you know a whole area that people have kind of struggled with as to whether or not one should link uh, extremism and certain forms of radicalism to essentially you know class politics, to economic deprivation, to the kind to to essentially economic exclusion that breeds you know social exclusion, psychological vulnerability, and so on. Where do you where do you stand on this? Psychological vulnerability, definitely, mm. but more manifested in terms of a lack of belonging, mm. a confused sense of identity mm. as to whether people belong here in Britain or elsewhere, as to whether they're Muslim first or British first, or whether they're both at the same time, or whether they're neither of those things, or those those deep questions of identity, especially pertinent to children of immigrants, second mm. generation, mm. born and raised Brits. Those are the deeper questions that haven't been answered. And almost across the board, whether you go to somewhere like Omar Khayyam 
Omar Sharif, who went to private school, then mm. to LSC, and then ended up, you know, beheading Daniel Pearl. Mm. You know, this is someone who came from a you know, presumably well-off upper-class structure. Or whether you look at the poor guys from Beast and Leeds, who came from a, you know, even today, despite the suicide bombers coming from there, Beeston is a very miserable, yeah. poor part of the country. Yeah. Um, so. I th- I'm loath to think that you know, class politics helps to explain everything, but it does go some way in helping explain the foot soldiers mm. of Islamist extremism. You know, much like Marx, I mean, he wasn't mm-hmm. a member of the proletariat by any stretch of the imagination. But the the ideologues tend to come from, you know, well-educated engineering schools, medical schools. But the foot soldiers. Yeah, I mean, in 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 Pakistan, the leading ideologues come from universities, but the mm. mass foot soldiers come from the madrasas. Pakistani mm. madrasas have not produced a single suicide bomber yet, mm. but they they they're the guys who fill out the demonstrations. They're the guys who fill out the mosques. They're the guys who are behind the network, but not necessarily, you know, mm. the, the the hardcore ideology or sometimes even delivery. You know, the suicide bombers in Pakistan last year, most of them came from university education background. Mm. Mark Sageman talks about that in his works. Yeah. But 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 psychological vulnerability, without doubt. And I think even people are on on the higher rungs of this class structure. And let's not pretend it doesn't exist because it does. Mm. Even there, you know, questions of identity and belonging, you know, haven't been altogether resolved. Um, we, we've been just speaking about sort of um, post nine eleven, post seven seven possible improvements. And uh, you were saying, for example, that trust increased in several areas in the UK. Now, um, about. We didn't really get into the problems. For example, one thing we were speaking about was, okay, there's trust, there's more awareness, but there's also more surveillance, for example. And there are people who argue um, that the um, uh, limiting of civil liberties, for example, might actually drive people into um, becoming extremists, which in turn would uh, uh, heighten the terrorist threat. So, for example, with policies like uh, prevent policies, like... uh, um, yeah, several approaches to counter-terrorism, counter-extremism, counter-radicalization. Where do you stand on these issues like surveillance and, and civil liberties being limited in the name of more security? Yeah, um, surveillance, I mean, it depends on what we mean by surveillance, whether it's a surveillance that actually, you know, intrudes into mm. someone's civil liberties or not. Um, but is there any kind of surveillance that does not include civil liberties? Well, there are cameras everywhere. Is that an intrusion of our civil liberties? Many people believe so. Well, I'm not so sure. They exist. I, I, don't, I personally, I mean, I, you know, most of us probably get picked up about 37, 8, 38 times a day by cameras. Have they in any way... Changed how you live? Yeah. And have they in any way compromised my relationship with the state or my personal life? I'm not so sure. I'm not giving a black and white answer. Have they enhanced my security as a citizen if I were to be, you know, mugged or what have you? then maybe these cameras have enhanced my security. The fact that the 7-7 guys were caught so quickly, so easily, within you know, a matter of hours... Uh, sorry, the 21-7 guys, the, the mm-hmm. 7-7 guys, it was a dyke, but the, the guys that came <laughs> afterwards. And the 7-7 guys were identified as to who they were. It was all from footage from you know, uh, CCTV cameras. So it could be argued that you know, it, it enhances mm. security and the liberty of the individual by homing in on the problem characters and therefore allowing us to be you know, free and fair, mm. living in a free and fair society. But I hear your point about surveillance and on, on the prevent agenda, I think the main point was that governments funding people, and this was an article I guess in the recent uh, sort of Times and Observer, yes. the government 
No, the Guardian. I shouldn't confuse the two because they get upset. Yeah. The, although they've produced. <laughs> they produce. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but the, in, in the Guardian earlier this week, I think that said that prevent funds were being allocated simply if people were cooperating in surveillance work mm. or handing over names of people using computers or yeah. you know, who who was working for which organisation or intelligence in local communities. Now, my organisation receives prevent funding. But for the domestic work we do, we've never been asked to hand over anything. Mm. So that's my response to that. Mm. But, but then those who believe in prevent being used for surveillance could argue a whole host of other things. Now, in response to that, I would say, where's the harm? If you've got nothing to hide, why are you so afraid of opening your books? Uh, if it's for the benefit of the country, benefit of people living here, benefit of security, why is there such... Uh, a sense of discomfort in saying to whether it's the Home Office or CLG or the local police officer or the local intelligence man as to you know who's who I mean that that I don't understand so, so that, that's my response to that and, you know, as Muslims you know, we should be seen as a fifth columnist as if we've got something to hide if there's a problem among Muslims then let's just be open about it hand over whoever has terrorist extremist leanings why should we be afraid of it and why should we be seen to be some sort of you know impenetrable mm. castle that the outside community, whatever that is, can't get in and we're mm. the ones who are holding terrorists back. Because that school of thought then I think helps the BNP and others to say, look, look at these separatist, divided mm. terrorists who give succor and protection to terror uh, to extremism. Mm. So you know let's be transparent. Let's say we've got nothing to hide. You know come and look at whatever it is you want to look into because I think there's justifiable reason to do that. But on your other point, without doubt the, the curtailment of civil liberties such as locking up people for 42 days or 90 days as the government wanted to do without doubt, I completely agree with you, does increase terrorism and extremism simply because we A, lower our bar, um, we lose the moral high ground and it gives extremists a reason to say, well, you know, what's the difference between a democracy and a dictatorship and you get banged up for three months, yeah. you know, without any justifiable cause. And, I, you know, mm. Quinnum opposed the government's 42-day detention uh, um, proposals, mm. and I think Shami Chakrabarti and others were right on this. Mm. So, without doubt, you know, on that issue, I agree that detention must be at a minimum. And if you if you haven't got the evidence to try people, they're free to go. Yeah, absolutely. Can I ask you something um, on on the topic go going back slightly? Um, you referred to the second generation in particular. Um, you know, um, children of uh, of immigrants and. and having that sense of belonging neither in one place nor the other. Um, and I think possibly in our uh, context, um, that's even being heightened by the ease with which you can be um, in touch with what could be considered to be your so-called home country. I mean, I think that's something that's probably changed um, in the past 20, 30, 40 years um, in terms of you know that sense of arriving in Britain um, and being here and only returning to wherever you came from, you know, after several years having put away the money. I mean, you know, we've got cheaper flights, cheaper communication, easier communication, and kind of that's both good and at the same time, you know, creates the pressure for a kind of a hybrid um, uh, identity, which isn't so, so easy to develop, uh, in fact. Um, but I was wondering, therefore, if, if there is that, that sense in which it's second and, for example, in the Netherlands, they've, they've done a lot of research on the sort of second and third generation and then the fact that actually things get, you know, ironed out, if, as it were. Do you think it is generational? In which case, 
um, you know, do you think that, you know, we're seeing a particular moment in history rather than, you know, a vast reservoir of potential radicalisms and extremisms, uh, you know, for the for, for Muslim communities that, you know, that might not go away? I mean, or do you think this is just, this is a wave that we need to ride out? Mm-hmm. Yeah, tough question. Um, I like to think it's a wave that we need to ride out, but what's the direction of the wave? Mm. Uh, where is the wave heading towards? Mm. Is the wave heading towards the shore? Is the wave heading out further to sea? Mm. And there are indications that sometimes the wave seems to be heading out to sea. Because if you look at the American experience, mm. for vast, the vast majority of you know, second, third generation immigrants, um, there are two things that count in their favour. And also, you know, I hate to say this, but also with France, mm-hmm. you know, there are things that count in their favour on this one. And that's one, a clear sense of what those two countries are about, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's the written constitution or whether it's a clear sense of identity or history or language or you know, a sense of purpose in the world. Those two countries have that. If your average Muslim in America feels American, mm. you know, and all this stuff about foreign policy here in the UK, that that's what drives extremism. Well, America was also <laughs> in Afghanistan and in Iraq, and you know, it wasn't in a minor role, to put it mildly. <laughs> yeah. You know, how come the American Muslims weren't blowing themselves up, and why is it that British Muslims felt that they, you know, in Sadiq Khan's own words, you, know, you are in our lands. Mm i.e. Iraq and Afghanistan, and this was not his land. The Yorkshire boy speaks mm. along those lines. Mm. Um, so I think America has something to offer in terms of tying people, mm. buying people, binding people together. Mm. Um, and the proof for that is my second point, and that's large numbers of American Muslims as well as French Muslims are marrying inside of France, mm. inside of America, and marrying non-Muslims, mm. you know, indigenous, in inverted commas, um, French people and indigenous Americans. Mm. <laughs> if that's such a, if there's such a thing, that's <laughs> that an indigenous American. American you know? <laughs> I believe they were wiped out, you know, <laughs> quite quickly <laughs> when they arrived. <laughs> <laughs> the brown people. But anyway, putting that to one side, do you see what I mean? That, that that's going. But here in Britain, we're still in a situation where large numbers of Muslims are still going quite quote unquote back home mm. to marry from Pakistan, Bangladesh, India, and that then accentuates the problem. So my great test is this, that unless, you know, as we ride this wave, unless we see people putting down roots here, you know, whether mm. in whatever form it is, marriage being one example, that they make this their home, that their children grow up without the confusion of where they belong to, you know, we might see this repeated, yeah. another wave and another wave. Yeah. So in, in summary, it's the interjections we make at this stage you know, will determine where the wave heads. Yeah. In, in comparison to the to France and the U- U.S., which you just mentioned, um, particularly those two countries, uh, when we think of immigration, we also think of assimilation very strongly. And this is a point which also in England right now is again on the on the main party's agendas. Um, might this also be a problem of assimilation versus immigration versus multiculturalism, for example, in those policies? Yahya Bert recently criticized the Prevent Agenda as securitizing immigration, which does not sound very much like welcome here, but first of all, security check. Mm. I mean, you're right with France. It is, without doubt, a push on assimilation. Hence, the complete lack of a hyphenated identity, something that you were speaking about earlier, Mm. Catherine. But 
in America, I mean, I'm not sure it's assimilation. It does seem to be, you know, the hyphenated identity, living comfortably side by side with Irish Americans, with African Americans, with Chinese Americans. Mm. And it does seem to be a push on integration while people retaining their distinct, you know, faith, ethnic, sexual, gender-based identities without compromising it to, you know, that, that wasp culture, white Anglo-Saxon mm. Protestant mm. culture. Mm. So I think America maybe has you know, something more to instruct us on this than the France assimilationist model. Because with France and this assimilationist model, yes, it's showing lots of good signs, but then you know, it has similar problems, if not worse, than many of our issues here in Britain. I mean, where are Rashid Dadata probably is an mm. exception. Mm. Where are the huge numbers of... Exactly. You know, the, the, there's the, the minorities are vastly underrepresented. It is it is interesting that in a country where you know if you look at the Pew Attitude surveys, you know one of the attitude surveys that came out a couple of years ago, it was the height of the debate around you know the wearing of the uh, the hijab in schools and so on and so forth. Nevertheless, you know Pew Attitude survey survey shows up the fact that you know actually most Muslims are happier living in France than the Muslims um, living in Britain. Really? Which right. is an ex- yeah. you know, which is right. an extraordinary finding, right? Mm. But at the same time, mm. uh, you know, so you could say, okay, well, so integration is working. Well, if integration is working so well, why are there so few minorities represented in France? Why is it that France essentially still sees fit to talk about the fact that four years ago they had the first non-white face mm. um, on television news? Gosh, we've been going since the nineteen sixties on that one. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, so. So what's interesting is that, you know, we have to ask ourselves, where is this integration occurring, actually? Because it's certainly not occurring um, in some of the more sort of visible aspects of, of civil society, including, you know, the media um, and, and, you know, entertainment at, at large. Um, I would say the only place where it's working is in sports. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's certainly not working in terms of representative government. Yeah. So uh, it's just a it's a bit of a yeah. it's a bit of, yeah. a, of a conundrum. Can I ask you um, one uh, one last question, which again uh, also goes back to something you were saying earlier? Um, you mentioned Leeds and you mentioned Beeston. One of the things that uh, when I was carrying out research there that I was very very surprised about was actually how different Leeds felt from the rest of the country in terms of its institutional approach to diversity. Um, or lack thereof, as it were. Um, it, it felt, you know, in terms of its local council structures, local government structures, um, it felt vastly behind uh, most of the major cities that I, that I knew, particularly the case of Birmingham, uh, but also the case of Leicester and, 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 and the usual cities that get cited. Leeds seemed to have a very different institutional approach to this. Do you think that that plays any role um, as to not just what Beeston uh, became unfortunately known for, but the fact that, as you say, Beeston is still a miserable place mm-hmm. to live in uh, right now. What is the role of, of institutions and institutional programs in, uh, you know, that, that, that some of us might think of as, you know, political correctness, but, you know, do they have, do, do these programs, have they delivered and in a case like Leeds where they seem to have been largely underdeveloped could you say mm, that mm. something went wrong there yeah, I wonder I wonder what it is that went wrong there um, you, know, you know Leeds 
you cited Leicester and other places in the Midlands, and I think often those of us who are you know, London-centric in our outlook mm. tend to think that, that you know the whole, whole of the north is one big development outside. <laughs> outside London. But, you know, Leicester is in, I guess you could say it's in the Mid- Midlands, mm. and Birmingham's in the Midlands, yeah. and you're right to identify the institutional differences or, or the institutional programmes being different from, say, Leeds. Or, I mean, I'd even go further, and I know Dewsbury is uh, you know, aesthetically more pleasing than mm. Leeds in mm. many parts, and you know, very nice little... Mm-hmm. Yeah, and but and that also has its problems, but... I mean, I don't, I don't want to point fingers, but Leeds Council, it's small things, like it's a desire to paint all its houses black. <laughs> you know, the North isn't renowned for sunshine, but then you amplify that uh, yeah, darkness yeah. with further darkness, <laughs> and people wake up in those uh, terraced houses and Painted come out black. And, yeah, but that can't be good for the soul. No, <laughs> my point exactly. That, I mean, it's misery amplified. Yeah, and but those those small measures are indications, I think, of most people who work in those councils don't live in a place like Beeston. For mm-hmm. them, it's just a ghetto that's over there that's uncomfortable and needs to be dealt with. Um, on top of that, I, I think, again, at the risk of sounding controversial, most of the people who work in these councils tend to come from a very privileged, white, middle-class background. And why do I say that? Well, you look at Leeds and the main community centre in Beeston, a place called Hamara, mm. and we won't talk about the history of the place, but where it stands now. The word Hamara may sound comfortable, uh, sorry, comforting and comfortably ethnic to your white local authority officer, mm-hmm. but it means, you know, ours in Urdu, so only those who come from an Urdu-speaking background will resonate with this as being our centre. Yeah. Now, in today's Ironically, days, it sounds close to uh, donkey in Arabic. Yeah, yeah, would be some yeah. donkey in it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or the colour red, hamra, uh, yeah. and, and, and you know, all conditions about the brothel and so on. So yeah. well, putting all those to one side, you know, hamara in Urdu means ours, and therefore our community centre. Well, mm. lots of people now in Leeds, in, in and around Beeston, are from Latvia, mm. Poland, Somalia, Bangladesh. Hamara is not our centre. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. So those are just small anecdotes to maybe illustrate a, a, a kind of thinking that there's a there's a strange blindness operating in in certain in certain councils. It seems to me. I mean, I don't want to, you know. I mean, you know, we can leave this out. Well, this but I'm just very much in line yeah. with, the, for example, Muslim focus you have or yeah, South yeah, Asia focus yeah, you have. No, we, we've policy. said this openly at the party conference, in, at the Tory party conference. And I, I, I don't think you know you're alone in observing this. Mm. The fact that the Department for uh, Community and Local Government here in London, CLG, um, and this is from Paul Richards, who used to be an advisor mm. to the CLG and yeah. Hazel Blairs, who freely admits that local authorities have no handle on these issues because they're complex, they're mostly politically incorrect. Look, people come into the local authority to be on the side of communities, to Mm. work in housing, to work Mm. against racism, not to somehow think, well, the very people who've helped out, some of them have actually gone and become the bad guys that we were against at the outset. So it's very difficult for people from backgrounds in housing and covering racism and supporting immigration etc etc think they're actually you know being, there are being, there yeah. are brown bnp people too you know, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. their ideology may not be nationalist but their ideology happens to be religion based mm. you know, it's a difficult one, one to get their heads around 
but um, by 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 the reckoning of government ministerial advisors, that there is a serious blind serious blind spot in awareness and education when it comes to countering Islamist extremism. Because, mm. and that's amplified by the fact I think that we live in a post-religious, post-ideological society. You know, we have most people difficult in understanding our own religions, be it Christianity or what mm. have you. Now, to understand someone else's religion, mm. Islam, and then to understand the extremists within it, yeah, you know, is doubly problematic. It's a stretch. <laughs> stretch okay we, we said last question but actually we do have one more quick question <laughs> and then we'll leave you <laughs> sorry 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 um which in terms of what we've covered in terms of the the debate the media debate around in this country uh what are the what are the issues that we're not covering what are the things that you think are you know missing in quite an obvious way that need to be on the agenda and that aren't getting any airplay the, the, the media, national media discussions, national media discussions, and national politics. Yeah. Right now with the yeah. conferences of the main parties, yeah. or what's what's overrepresented and should tone down a bit. Yeah, overrepresented certainly is his Tahrir. And Chris mm. Grayling went out of his way to say, "Oh, you know, we will ban his Tahrir." Mm. David Cameron, with all respect to him, said that at the last party conference in his speech, mm. or the one before that at least, yeah. in the last two years, there was one point at his own speech he said, "You know, we will ban." Yeah. Now, you know. Banning Hezbollah Tahrir is not the answer, but the Tory party seem, can, seem, seem you know, hell-bent on making oh, this the central yeah. plank of their counter-terrorism there policy. We'll ban a group of 200, 250 people. But there are other issues which, which aren't being discussed, and mm. I'm glad you say, asked that question, actually. One, one being the seminaries mm. in several northern cities, where nearly 21 seminaries are operating in northern cities, yeah. away from media attention, yeah. away from... Uh, state interference in terms of helping these citizens, imams, mm. who will then become conduits to other citizens mm. you know, to understand understand why Britain is what it is today. You know, that's mm. not being explained. Mm. So post sixteen, they're being left alone. And you know, whoever the next government is, I wish there was more emphasis on reaching out to these individuals who, in time, control two thousand mosques and, by implication, nearly two million plus Muslims in the UK. Yeah. Um, so that's one area: education. A second area is women's unemployment, mm. uh, and that rate is exceptionally high yeah. among women, not because they're Muslim, but because they come from a South Asian immigrant background. Mm. Again, you know, in a recession, there are good reasons to talk about this in terms of making sure that they're trained and they contribute to the workforce. Mm. Uh, that's high, and that's, I don't mm. think, is being addressed yeah. readily enough. Another is the lack of English language provision. Mm. Um, you know, the, 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 I mean, the, the Tory, Tory uh, opposition has said repeatedly that you know, it wants to scrap these things and ensure people speak English, but and, and, and stop the taxpayer to fund it. But I think it is for it's the taxpayer to fund it at this stage because if it's about money, then it, these people then will go into the war workforce and they will return those taxpayers' expenses and contribute more. Yeah. Um, so it's you know sh constant short termism. Those are just three initial thoughts that mm. come to my mind about what you know that these issues should really be highlighted but they're not and, and a fourth if I may would be that these huge events that are taking place you know 20,000 25,000 young Muslims gathering last year at the London Excel Centre in Docklands um, and being exposed to Saudi clerics and others who have a radical border border on extremism brand of Islam that I mean we shouldn't be for banning these events but no civil society challenges being opposed to them because the media isn't interested 
Mm. And my final comment to this is underlying all of this, and I'm not one to criticise the media because I don't believe it's a monolithic media. Mm-hmm. Underlying all of this is you know, just taking it to Quilliam for a moment. The work we do here, w- whenever we put out occasionally we have bad news stories, those get picked up very quickly by mm-hmm. you know, segments <laughs> of the media. When we've highlighted these issues such as unemployment or how to challenge the BNP mm. uh, you know, with facts and stats and historical arguments, interestingly those haven't been picked up. So there does seem to be an institutional bias mm. in you know, editorial discussions that salacious, negative news headlines seem to work, whereas anything that's remotely positive, even for a small sort of, you know, small column or an op-ed piece, you know, it just doesn't seem to be happening. Harder to place. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you.